Hey there, sports fan. Welcome to the Draft Site Podcast, your home for all professional sports drafts. Brought to you by DraftSite.com, the original full round mock draft site. Now let's get to the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to DraftSite's third podcast edition. Today we are joined with our hosts of the last two, but now they're together. We have DJ Boyer. And Zach Gutierrez. We're kind of like uh, Reese's peanut butter cups, you know, the chocolate and the peanut butter. Now we got the, all the best ingredients to give you the best show possible. Yeah, you seem like more of a peanut butter guy. I think I think you're right on, DJ. I already like where your head's at. I am more of a peanut butter guy. Well, let's hope you guys mesh as well in Reese's peanut butter cup. Anyway, today we're going to be talking about last week's podcast a little bit because uh, if you listen, Zach was spot on with a few things. We're going to talk Heisman, we're going to talk Fierce 40, we're going to talk NFL mock draft, and we're going to talk a little power rankings, and we'll see what else we have time for before the Pittsburgh Steelers game tonight against the Tennessee Titans. So, let's get started. Assuming that Gurley's ACL is healthy, and, uh, and he's ready to go at the beginning of next season, who is the better pro prospect, Todd Gurley or Melvin Gordon? Or T.J. Yeldon, if you want to throw T.J. Yeldon in there. If you want to get crazy, throw Abdul in there. Abdul, a four, uh, three would definitely be uh, Yeldon. It's almost splitting hairs. I would still give a slight slight edge to Gurley, but it's you're splitting hairs at that point. Uh, team's going to be very, very happy to land either one of them. However, in the mock, I do have Gordon as the first running back off the board. Yeah, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm seeing that right now. And do you think, do you think Gordon, with as good as he is, is top 15 because it's – like you said, there hasn't been a running back draft in the first two in the first round in the last two years. Is he the type of person that, uh, like, on a team later in the draft, or not even later in the draft? Obviously, these are speculative draft slots. But like, like a team like the Falcons that really, really needs a running back. Maybe Cleveland, seventeenth in our in our mock draft. I thought we would have seen a little more out of Devonta Freeman by now in Atlanta. Um, thought that maybe the, that was going to be a very good uh, fourth round pick for them last year where the torch was kind of going to be handed off. Um, Terrence West has performed uh, rather well uh, out of Towson and close to 2,500 yards at the uh, FCS level. Um, but I think, uh, Gordon, again, there's a stigma that goes along with the Wisconsin running backs that he's going to have to overcome as well. But he does – he just seems to project just a lot better than a, than a lot of the other people we've seen come out here. And, uh, you know, with Ron Dane really being the only first-round guy out of Wisconsin, and I know I've shared with Jared before the actual first NFL draft I got to cover, I was actually in the only time I was in a, a, a war room, per se. I was actually with the Giants when they made that selection. Uh, and kind of everything that went into that, that was uh, where the Giants did, did not hit a home run that day. It was a different era. It was a different era. The trade for Jerome Bettis had been made, and the – the Giants backed out at the last minute. Uh, Bettis was going through his second knee surgery. The next year he had his resurgence, and Pittsburgh got all the way to the, uh, the championship game, and Bettis had his best year as a pro. And uh, at the last minute, the Giants said, no, we're not going to draft this guy from Alabama. This Sean Alexander, we don't think he's got enough speed to the outside. Ron Dane's lost 30 pounds. Let's draft him. So not, not a good day. When you look back at the draft annals in New York Giant history, that was a, kind of a sad day. They uh, passed on Jerome Bettis and uh, passed up Sean Alexander for Ron Dane. That's amazing. Imagine what history might have 
done had that trade gone through. That's what really kind of hooked me to the draft. It's what I what I tell a lot of people. They were essentially five minutes away from two NFL seasons really being altered because even though the Giants made that deal, they got to the Super Bowl that year. They they lost to the Ravens, but Tiki Barber really gets his first chance at being a, a, an every down back. And if Bettis goes there, what happens to Tiki Barber's career? Does he does he ever get that chance? So there's a lot that. When you really look at it, sometimes those those decisions really have just have a big impact, and sometimes it's not how good a player is coming I mean, from the college level. Sometimes it's just the system they're in. Um, examples of some very good players who kind of fail first and you know go to another system and they they turn into to pro bowlers. It's uh, there's more to it sometimes than just being a good player or a bad player. So uh, Gordon, I think it would be a good opportunity and. In Miami, I think Miami's pretty close. I think they're they keep retooling that offensive line. They're getting more from that line than I think they anticipated right now. They keep tinkering with that, get a strong running game. Tanny Hill's uh, been playing a bit better. He's not really been losing any games for him. The defense is is solid but unspectacular. That's a team that's a lot closer. Than I think a lot of people uh, think, and, and is very very close to being a very good playoff team in the SC. He's got to get over that hump. I just want to uh, talk about something because you guys keep mentioning it, and I don't understand it when you say, oh, because Melvin Gordon went to Wisconsin. Teams are going to look down on him as a system player. I, I'm, I, I, don't, I don't understand how that could – maybe if it was a quarterback playing for June Jones in the early 2000s or if it's a quarterback playing for Chip Kelly. But how can you say Melvin Gordon, who played under two completely different coaches, is a product of the system? I understand you could say, and it's funny because Malcolm Gladwell touches on this, it's uh, Melvin Gordon got recruited to a school that usually has one of the top offensive lines, and they take pride in recruiting the running back. And I don't think Melvin Gordon's a product at all because he's, he's been under two completely different administrations, and he's, he's gotten better every time. And you can only say so much about the system until you turn on the tape and you just watch, especially last week, how explosive and – how much body control he has for a running back. It's it's crazy, and I think I'm totally opposed to drafting running backs in the top ten, but I think he's a guy that you could consider in the top ten, and everyone wants to say Gurley. I think Gurley pre-injury was, was definitely a top ten guy, but um, it's going to remain to be seen how he's going to re- rebound from this. And I think Gordon is the exception. I, I just hope that that stigma does not uh, really kind of attach to him because there really hasn't been a Wisconsin guy that succeeded. They've always been... They've never really had the body control. They've never had just the explosive speed that Gordon really has. Just uh, And just watching him on tape, too, the, the amount of times where it looks like the first defender or the first person that has a chance at him and can get a clean shot, and it, either they completely miss or it's kind of like a glancing blow. Uh, I'm amazed at how little contact he can actually – I mean, he can get up there and, I know. And, I and he can be punishing when he wants. Amazing. But he, he rarely takes a big hit. And to me, that's, that's amazing when you see a lot of very good running backs at, at the NFL level who are putting up these monster numbers and all of a sudden they, like a, like a Chris Johnson or an Eddie George, where it's, it's, when the end comes, it comes quickly just because of the, the toll and the physical abuse that they take at that position. So a guy like him is very similar to you know watching when, when Brian Westbrook was at his prime with the Eagles, uh, just never – just never get a clear shot on him. Uh, even Marshall Falk, to a degree, was very good at kind of a 
kind of getting out of those big blows. And, and that's what I see out of Melvin Gordon. I think that is very promising. And that's something that I think when I watch him, I'm amazed with more than anything. Because usually the players that you see at the college level that, that seem to have that tendency really go on to, to have a very good NFL career. So I, I, I think he's going to be the exception. I think Gurley was a, a little bit uh, higher on my board pre-injury, but you know, that, that, that's going to turn a lot of people off. But I still think he, uh, there's, there's going to be a team that will probably take a flyer on him probably toward the end of the first round. So I think Gordon's going to be the first running back off this, uh, off this board where I think T.J. Yeldon, he's, he's solid, he's a very good receiver, but he doesn't have that same explosiveness. I think Gordon is, is going to be the first guy off the board. I think it's a combination of vision with Gordon, which I, I have a feeling that you could just say maybe it's the Wisconsin coaching staff that installs it, no matter who it is, because, like I said, he – he was under Bielman, now he's under Anderson, so it's not even it's not even two of the same systems. But a lot of them going back to Quay, going back to Dane, even James White, Monty Ball, they had patience and vision, but I don't see any of them having the explosiveness as Melvin Gordon and, and that's why I I see him as a feature back, somebody that can go between the tackles and then that home run threat. And when I watch him run, he looks like Jamal Charles to me. There isn't much juking in the open field. It's one cut fast. He doesn't take hits on the sidelines. He somehow finds a way to like maneuver people without going out of bounds. It's very similar to Jamal Charles and just the, the way he looks. And with Gurley, I'm a little more hesitant just because one of the you know, I'd say, again, with, with Gordon, it was really the fact that he was able to get away from those big blows with Gurley. I'm amazed at how when he would be in the open field, he could accelerate without... It doesn't even seem like he was breaking a sweat or breaking stride. He could just kind of turn it on while in motion. you got to wonder if that's still going to be there after such a major injury that he sustained. And he's just, just a specimen. I mean, he, when he's out there, he just looks like he's on another plane when he's next to these guys. I mean, it looks like he's playing people from the JV squad. He just looks the part. You know what worries me about him? And it worried, it worried me about Adrian Peterson when he came out, and it really worried me about Darren McFadden. I think you were talking about Melvin, Melvin Gordon. Yeah, it's like he's, he, he has – Always looking for contact. He's always looking. I remember against Tennessee, he had that that rivalry going. I, I'm blanking on the name of the ten. They're, they're, they're premier linebacker, the senior, I believe number 58. And, and it was like plays you'd see him. They cut it slow motion. They'd they'd stop at his eyes, and he's not looking for yards. He's looking to figure out number four, number 45, number 45, where to find him and and to dig his helmet into his chest. And that's what I saw with McFadden. And you know that makes me worry about durability. Melvin Gordon reminds me of. I mean, I don't. This is a lofty expectation. Uh, lofty uh, comparison, but like Emmett Smith, who who every it was all very efficient. He knew how to fall. He knew how to get out of bounds. He he wasn't really trying to to finish runs like Walter Payton, who took pride in finishing runs, taking years off his career by getting that last three yards or two yards, you know, to set the tone for the game. Melvin Gordon is just uh, a smart runner, and like you said, you don't see him take very many hits, and that's huge, and that's huge to me. Yeah, and that was, was a big reason why I was not as high on Peterson actually coming uh, from the college level, uh, just because he did. He thought that contact. Sometimes a change of velocity. Another guy actually went to Georgia, was kind of like, even though he wasn't big, but Garrison Hurst would sometimes seek a little more uh, contact. And the fact that when he went down with a couple big injuries, late in his career, he actually had some of his best years when... I remember that one of the Falcons, that Falcons 49ers playoff game. Just very, very kind of more of an efficient runner and... Uh, he, he did a lot more north-south running and not uh, some of the east-west east, east west kind of juking that he tried to do early on as well. It was either a big run or kind of juking side to side, kind of same thing Thomas Jones went through. Thomas Jones kind of danced in the hole, and when he learned how to go north and south, he became a much, much better runner. So, And 
That's what yeah, I like about Paul. He's, he's a north and south runner. Yeah, and just the, the I've, it's just a trait that I really like in running backs, guys that can can just stay away from those big hits. Uh, it's it could equate to two, three years at the NFL level. How about the guy who almost took down Florida State, Duke Johnson, out of University of Miami? He's the fourth running back off the board in the latest mock. Uh, he's a second round uh, prospect. He's he's actually a guy that I was counting on to be kind of a dark horse for the Heisman this year. Uh, Miami faltered a little bit. They've got four losses on the season. I did uh, I did say this would be the week that Florida State would fall. I said that both uh, that the only unbeaten team left after this week was going to be Marshall, which I got half right. Uh, Alabama did win, and Miami was four yards away. So one out of two. While we're tooting our horns, let's uh, direct everyone to the draft site blog where DJ correctly predicted Mississippi State would, in fact, lose. And you know what? They did. He was spot on. So, DJ, Zach, you had some good points. Now, where were we wrong in the last week? The more I watch Jalen Strong, the more I think that, uh, I mean, while he's got a high ceiling, I'm not sure if he's the number one overall prospect in terms of going to the NFL. When I was talking about Jalen Strong last week, I was I was looking most most recently at the Notre Dame game, and like you said, Jerry, he had a great catch in that game, and that made him look good. But uh, in terms of his route running, I just he doesn't seem as polished as say an Amari Cooper or even uh, uh, Devontae Parker out of Louisville. I would say looking at the class overall, it's going to be a little bit of a down year overall, and I do have Cooper as the first wide receiver off the board in the latest mock going ninth overall. But I think overall it's going to be a bit of a down year. Not that it's a terrible wide receiver class or some very good uh, prospects here. Not as many of the small school prospects or some of the late rounders uh, that we've seen in kind of years past. And there, there's still some good prospects up near the top. But I think it is – there's going to be a little bit of dip from what we've seen in the last two to three years. Um, yeah, 2014 will be a hard class to follow. A very hard class to follow, and I, I do have a Cooper going at nine and a Strong going at 18, uh, being the first two wide receivers off the board. But uh, it's hard to bet against Amari uh, Cooper being the top wide receiver off the board at this moment. He's he's played uh, he's played outstanding. Again, the thing that I really like about this class is we're we're going to see some middle tier prospects that are really, really good blockers. Might be one of the best blocking classes we've seen for wide receivers. Um, and, and, and that gets more and more important with uh, the NFL. We're seeing more and more spread uh, spread uh, offenses and running out of kind of that spread formation. For wide receivers, it's gotten to be almost as important as blocking for running backs. So that's, that's something that teams are taking a long, hard look at, and it's really something that wide receivers have to be more cognizant of at the college level. Now, DJ, Amari Cooper has 1,300 yards and 11 touchdowns, but you have him at eight in your Heisman list. What does he have to do to jump up to the top five? I'll probably have a Melvin Gordon-esque game and have uh, Alabama uh, get to the national title game, possibly. Uh, well, the, the Heisman will be decided by that point, but kind of lead them uh, – into the SEC championship game, probably win. I, it's just kind of far-fetched. We don't see the wide receivers do this often. Uh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. 1987, Tim Brown would have been the last wide receiver. Tim Brown, yeah. Uh, Desmond well, Howard, you kind of consider like a hybrid. Yes, 19, uh, 1991, Desmond Howard. Um, it, it just doesn't happen often. What we're seeing more and more prospects being taken, being this is a, a wide-open passing league, but you're, you, you don't see those – 
wide receivers at the top of the draft. I mean, it's, I believe it's only been three times. I want to say Tom Fears for the Rams, Irving Fryer for Nebraska, and Keyshawn Johnson of USC is the only three wide receivers taken number one overall. And Fryer actually did it when he had a um, Heisman teammate. That would have been Mike Rozier in, in 1982 with Nebraska. So uh, it's just hard for them. Uh, the quarterbacks would usually just get all the glory. Um, or uh, you know, there was a long long string of, of running backs kind of in the late 70s, early 80s, where running backs were on a tear there as well. So uh, it's just very, very hard for a wide receiver to really shine through. Randy Moss probably being the uh, closest thing in, in the last, I'd say, you know, 15, 20 years. Don't forget Larry Fitzgerald came in second. He probably should have won it. Oh, Larry Fitzgerald was uh, probably the greatest interview I ever got to do at the Combine. Just fantastic guy to... Uh, just actually speak with, and, and just uh, just a great prospect. One of the one of the highest grades I've ever given somebody coming out uh, at the college level, and the opportunities he had as, as a youngster with his father being a receivers coach. I mean, can you imagine being a teenager and um, catching balls off a ball machine when his dad is the receivers coach in Minnesota when they had Jake Reed, Did Chris uh, Carter, and Chris Carter? Oh, that's I mean, you couldn't ask for more. I also mentioned that. JT Barrett would emerge in Heisman talk, and that Dak Prescott would falter playing Alabama, Ole Miss. And I think both of those statements would be considered true by most people that follow the sport closely. So let's talk about the QBs. I noticed that in the top ten, uh, once again, you have one, two, three, four, five, six quarterbacks in the top ten for the Heisman watch with Marcus Mariota at number one. Um, obviously, it's a great year for quarterbacks for college football and then into the NFL. But what has to happen for Melvin Gordon to catch Marcus Mariota? Oh, After well, last I week, think... I don't think he has to catch him. I think I think he's the front runner. It's a, it's a possibility. He's definitely in that same that same breath right now. I still consider Mariota to be the front runner, but again, the fact that he had 408 yards and again Mariota on on a week where they actually had a bye, and uh, Oregon's already kind of sewn up their their half of the Pac-12 while the other half is just complete chaos right now. Um, it seems like just about anybody can win that. Uh, that's it's definitely in Melvin Gordon's favor. So um, it's it's definitely gotten a lot tighter. I mean, it really looked like a two-horse race, but it, it's, it now might be two horses. But with Prescott on the outside now, it's, it's not the two that we were expecting just a week or two ago. If Florida State wins out, doesn't Winston deserve a little more of an opportunity to win that Heisman again? He should, he should be invited, he, but <laughs> that's about it. Yeah, I, I think that he's in that upper echelon, but you know, the you know, people are really going to just going to look at the statistics. The statistics are not there. Uh, you know, 18 TDs to 12 interceptions. But the fact that I mean, the big the big thing that uh, he doesn't have is a loss. I mean, he's what 22 and 0 now in his collegiate career, uh, and just the fact that I believe it's seven games now actually uh, that they've six or seven games of their of their uh, 10 wins this, this season. They've they've come from behind or been trailing at some point in the second half. So he's doing it in dramatic fashion. That and, of course, the off-the-field concerns may not uh, – or, or we may not even see him go to New York just because of uh, some of the, the controversy surrounding him and the discipline hearings, and it, it just seems to be a circus surrounding him all the time. But he definitely knows how to win. 
So speaking of Florida State, they're number one near Fierce 40, which is pretty obvious. And then Alabama follows them at number two, which is not surprising considering they beat the number one team in the country this week. But after that, it's, uh, it's tough to sort out. We have Oregon, Mississippi State, Baylor, TCU, Ohio State. DJ, when you were doing your Fierce 40 this week, how did you determine who, who would be ranked higher of those one-loss teams? Well, really, I had TCU kind of leading that pack for a while, but the fact that they really struggled against Kansas, we saw Kansas make a conceited effort to really kind of close up those running lanes for Travoyne Boykin, 11 carries for two yards. It, it made a big, big difference, and Kansas was pretty close to pulling off that upset. And, and the fact that Baylor's actually beat them head-to-head, it was a tremendous comeback, one of the best games that we've seen all season uh, when they were able to actually come back in that game where I think there was about uh, 2,000 points scored between uh, Baylor and TCU. Defense was optional, but uh, Baylor was able to come back. Uh, That really kind of spoke volumes, but, you know, there's a large part of me that uh, they could both be leapfrogged by Ohio State very, very soon. I mean, I got to admit that I thought that JT Barrett was going to do a very, very good job, but really was not, I think, prepared for just how well he's done. He's gone from being good to being great. You know, 38 touchdowns, and, you know, there's been a number of very good signal callers coming through uh, Buckeye land there, and the fact that he sent that uh, single-season record has to speak volumes for what he's done kind of coming out of nowhere. And uh, it's possible we could actually see him going to New York now. He's, he's just responsible for, for Ohio State now. Uh, could be – it was kind of an afterthought with, with no team. Uh, no one thought it would be – whether it would be Ohio State or Michigan State that no one was going to get a sniff for the college football playoff. But – a couple of these uh, teams falter in the Big 12, and Ohio State keeps winning the way they do. Um, you've got to put them in the discussion, and they've got a chance to, to sneak into this college football playoff. Uh, I love everything you said about JT Barrett. I think, like I told you last week, JT Barrett definitely should be going to New York for the Heisman. If you put up the tape of Mariota versus Michigan State in Eugene, and then you watch the same tape of JT Barrett playing at Michigan State, you'll see that they played pretty similar, and I would almost give the edge to JT Barrett. And he was on the road. He was a freshman. And uh, it's a shame because of the Big 12 not having a conference championship game. I'm not sure if this is going to hurt or help them. But it's going to be tough to watch as an Ohio State fan to see if TCU and Baylor both get in. And uh, that's uh, kind of a nightmare of mine, obviously, as an Ohio State fan. Like, like DJ said, Ohio State probably could be ranked higher than than they are, and we'll see tomorrow when the official college rankings come out. But I'm going to go with a few things. I don't think Alabama's the best team in the country. Uh, I think they're much better at home than they are. I don't think they're, they're nearly as good as uh, they are at home on a neutral field or away. Um, Florida State is not that good either. I mean, I know they haven't lost, and I know they've been winning pretty much the last two years, but there's been a lot of games where they, they probably should have lost. And, uh, Miami is not that quality of a team. I know that Virginia Tech's not that quality of a team to beat Ohio State, but the way that I put it, I think I got to go uh, Oregon number one, uh, Alabama two, Florida State three, and then Baylor four. And the reason I put Baylor over TCU is obviously the head-to-head matchup uh, and the fact that they absolutely smoked Oklahoma and in Oklahoma and Norman, so that's got to really give them uh, some sort of edge. At the end of the year, it's tough to say right now. With all the conference championships, still coming forth. It's definitely too early to really even guess when a team like Alabama 
might have to play, uh, you know, Georgia or Ohio State might have to play uh, Wisconsin. Yeah, odds are it'll be Wisconsin. I hope that it's Wisconsin. I hope Wisconsin keeps killing teams so Ohio State can play them and hopefully have a, you know, a really, really good showing because that's what they're going to need to get into the national champion. I mean, to get into the playoff picture. Well, speaking of JT Barrett, how do you see him as a pro prospect? But I would say looking at him um, as a freshman, Vice Braxton Miller, I would say that from the pro level, uh, I would say JT Barrett probably transfers better right now than, than Braxton Miller would. I think it's it's promising for him. But, again, it's very, very uh, – it's definitely too early to tell, but uh, it, it is encouraging, and, and Ohio State's getting a lot more uh, from him than I believe anyone would have expected. Um, so uh, – I don't know, but he's kind of snuck up on some teams as well. You got to see how uh, kind of the the second go round uh, will be next year when some of these Big Ten teams, you know, and and what's even going to happen? Uh, is Braxton Miller going to be returning as the primary quarterback? Are we going to kind of see a, a two headed monster? What's going to go on here? It's going to be very very interesting. Um, but um, early returns uh, have got to be very positive with JT Barrett. I'd like to say that you said that JT Barrett was as far along as Braxton Miller was, but let's remember that JT Barrett's a redshirt freshman, and he's had both of his. He's been he's been Urban Meyer's offense, you know, since since he was recruited. Braxton Miller was a true freshman taking the field with a completely depleted Ohio State team that had lost literally every single one of their star players under Luke Fickle. So um, there's going to be a big difference in production. So obviously, you put the production numbers next to each other, you say JT Barrett's killing him. But as somebody that you know really doesn't miss an Ohio State game, I say JT Barrett's excellent. I see him as like a Taj Boyd type pro prospect. Uh, the interesting interesting thing to me is I don't really see Braxton Miller as an excellent pro prospect, but I see him as somebody that could be like a Denard Robinson in the NFL because laterally he's about as explosive as there is in college football. And I think if you, if you were to put him in the backfield at Ohio State next year as a redshirt senior, probably weighing 235 pounds, like a 22-year-old man, he would be the best running back in the Big Ten, assuming Melvin Gordon leaves. With Braxton Miller, a very good uh, player, but um, I've just there's just uh, there's a few hitches in the delivery. I'm I'm not seeing him as a as a signal caller or. Uh, and Denard Robinson, uh, I really thought he was going to be a very, very good pro, but but honestly, I thought it was going to be a, as a corner. Uh, he was heavily recruited uh, to play cornerback for, as a matter of fact, it looked like he was going to be a cornerback for Miami when uh, you know he didn't get a lot of uh, chances to try being a quarterback to play on offense and eventually went to Michigan. Um, so, I mean, the possibility's there, but uh, um, I, I really don't uh, – I don't know. It's just a shame that I thought that Braxton Miller would probably win the Heisman with a healthy season this year, um, but I'm not as, as sold on, on him at the, at the next level, whether it be a quarterback or, or any other position. Any other players in the, you know, in, in the Fierce 40 that have jumped on your radar this past week for, as NFL draft prospects? Yeah, I'd say it's been a little more about uh, which players are actually falling. Um, uh, you the, the the one thing you really look at is just looking at the games, just how many good prospects are, are at the University of Washington. Aside from Florida State, Washington may surprise people, even though they're not ranked right now. Uh, they are 6-5. and five. They've lost a number of tough games. They actually just gave the game away against Arizona. That was kind of embarrassing how that um, panned out for them. They should have won that game. Uh, but they've got uh, four guys that 
possibly they could have four people drafted in the first round. Right now I've got three. Um, with uh, Kikaha, the uh, defensive end, who's actually leading the, the uh, uh, FCS in, in sacks, or FBS in sacks uh, right now as a second-round prospect. So there, you know, you've got Shaq Thompson there, uh, Marcus Peters, uh, Danny Shelton, uh, a number of very good players on defense. Uh, I think that's going to surprise people when you look at Washington only being six and five. But again, aside from Florida State, that may be the, the team that's we're, we're going to see the most prospects coming at the next level. But but some of the big uh, people that we thought were going to be kind of stud players have slipped a little bit. Vic Beasley from Clemson, who looked like a top ten pick had he declared last year, he got off to a great start, but he's looked rather pedestrian. And Corey Crawford's actually been doing a little more damage on the other side, and and. It's, it's not really the, the factor that they're, they're doubling up on, uh, on uh, Beasley anymore. It looks like uh, there's been more double teams for a player like Grady Jarrett in the middle or Corey Crawford on the other side. You look at Cedric Abwehi, who looked like the top offensive tackle uh, Texas A&M, and he has really struggled, uh, really struggled minorly. Ekpre Olamu, the cornerback from Oregon, has actually been beaten for seven touchdowns now on the season, and he looked like uh, one of the best prospects at corner. Still is a very, very good athlete, but it seems to be war of attrition right now. It seems to be more of these top prospects actually kind of falling and some, some uh, more so than players actually from the second tier kind of rising up and, and making a big charge. Yeah, great. But I think you see that in years prior. You remember when, uh, when David Amerson was uh, coming off like what he had that nine interception year. And then he kind of has that lull the second year because people are aware of him and he's not sneaking up on anybody, but if you look at him, he's, he's, he's a pretty decent pro. So, uh, I think a lot of steals can be had when you have somebody that is really considered a top prospect based on intangibles and size and speed at the beginning of the year, and then they have an off year, and then they end up going in the sixth, seventh round. Somebody like a Greg Hardy, who I think was on everybody's big board, like top 15, and then somehow slipped to the sixth round. Two guys that I watched uh, this weekend. One, I like David Cobb, the running back from Minnesota. Perfect size, five foot eleven, two hundred and thirty pounds. Uh, he's a senior, but he's really only been carrying the ball two years. Uh, he's had a, almost twenty touchdowns, twenty six hundred yards the last two years. He reminds me of like he, he runs like a like a shorter Eddie George, and uh, why you know we're talking about Ohio State. Joey Bosa just continues to to amaze me. Considering he's only a true sophomore, I'm I'm really excited to see where he ends up on draft boards next year. And I, I think another player that's kind of yo-yoed, Cameron Irving, uh, the, the I was going to say offensive tackle, but he's kind of played everything now for Florida State. And looked like a, another guy would have definitely been a top 20 pick had he declared last year. Goes back in, uh, comes back to Florida State. Really uh, looked like his, his draft status had taken a hit. Uh, his foot pretty sloppy. Lateral movement was was kind of suspect. They moved him inside, and now they've actually moved him to, to center. This was the first game he started at center against Miami. He actually looked very, very good. Florida State's had some, some chances or, or some, uh, some problems there ever since Brian Stork has moved on to the NFL. Been the one kind of, I said, sore spot along the line. And now the fact that Cameron Irving, I think just through his versatility, the fact that he has now in the last two years started at all five positions along the line at Florida State, and not the best tackle out there, best prospect, but – his versatility, I think, is probably going to push him up a lot of boards now because it's it's rare that you see, you know, anyone play at all five positions. You see kind of those versatile linemen, but that Irving, that that's uh, it's actually pretty impressive. He looked very very good playing center against Miami, so I think he's kind of resurrected his draft status as well. 
yeah, that'll probably pump them up the versatility, you know, being able to fill in at any position, especially on the offensive line is one of the most important things that, that I that I feel like the people that are putting together the offensive line look for. Travis Frederick for the Cowboys, somebody uh, like Zach Martin this year that, that, that played almost every single line position. As Barrett Jones proved, he has to be an athlete because Barrett Jones started and excelled at almost every position, yet still went to the fourth round. And it's still up in the air as to what type of career he's going to have at the NFL level. He also had a lot of wear and tear on him. Um, four years. So we've just launched the a new mock draft tonight, and now we have fifth. We have five rounds. Um, hopefully, everyone checked it out by now. But there are a few a few surprises. Uh, we talked about some guys who have dropped a lot. One of those guys is Bryce Petty, who's now projected to go 91 in the third round. DJ, how, uh, how did we come up with that? I just think that he's, you know, he's putting up some good numbers, but, you know, the, the one game that he missed early on, we did see Seth Franklin come in and actually throw for over 500 yards. Um, he, he looks good. He just doesn't wow you in any particular area. I think sometimes uh, vision seems to be a little limited, kind of locks onto a receiver or just kind of cuts himself off from portions of the field. Arm strength, it's good. It's not great. Velocity, good, not great. Pretty accurate, but again, not exceptionally accurate. Very, very solid quarterback, but just just one of those guys who I think is going to slip. Not a lot of uh, teams are going to be really, really enamored. He's not going to blow you away in workouts, and uh, I think he's just going to be one of those guys that you're going to look at in the, the middle rounds and that, that someone can come away with as a possible person who could start in a, in a year or two down the road. Yeah, I agree. I, I... You know, comparing to people like AJ McCarron and uh, Aaron Murray that were, you know, projected to be third round picks in these early mock drafts. And, uh, I think like DJ said, once you get him onto the spotlight and, uh, I think he's one of those tweener prospects that's probably going to have to throw out the combine. And I mean, I don't see his arm strength blowing people away. His size is adequate. He's more athletic than people give him credit for, but, uh, I really don't see too much of a difference between him and say like an Aaron Murray. Yeah, and into five, early six, yeah, somewhere somewhere in there around uh, Tom Brady territory. So I agree with you on that one, that he probably shouldn't be a first-round pick. Remember last year at this time, I mean, how many people probably had Taj Boyd in, the, in their, like, up to top five? One of the things I think they look for is, like, the consistent uh, arm slot, like when they're throwing it with the same motion mechanics start to... You really start to get a, a feel on the player's mechanics when you're watching that much tape on him and also decision-making. And uh, Bryce Petty's made... Pretty pretty good decisions this year, but I don't see him. I I think decision making is only a portion of the battle, and he doesn't make, he didn't make any decisions better than say Aaron Murray last year at Georgia. And and, and Todd Boyd Todd Boyd is a, is an interesting case as you brought up. I think uh, one he, he measured in a lot shorter than people were expecting as well. Sometimes the the tail of the tape with a quarterback six two seems to be that magic line of demarcation. You're over six two. You've got you've got good height or you know, six four, six five. You're that prototypical size, and six two is kind of like eh, you're you're on the fence. If you're under six two, it's oh, you're you're short, or you're gonna have a lot of passes batted down at the line of scrimmage. And when Todd Boyd came in under six two, and and the fact that um, it wasn't very well publicized, but it, it more of it came out recently because of the James Winston and the the, the alleged fixing scandal against Louisville, kind of the same accusations came up uh, with Todd Boyd last year, and a lot of teams were kind of privy to that. That dropped them down the boards as well. They were never able to prove that 
he was directly involved with anything, but there were a lot of questionable, I should say, alliances or friendships, and that uh, that turned a lot of teams off and really kind of took him off probably 10 to 15 boards automatically, regardless of whether he was well, like, going to be a first. Somebody like Todd Boyd, and I didn't realize how important it was, was when I, until I heard you know NFL executives talk about it, the arm slot, how he never really throws from the same arm slot. In the NFL, it's almost impossible to be consistent, unless you're one of those excellent, like, once-in-a-generation players, like a Brett Favre. I'm not going to say he's a once-in-a-generation player, but like a Matt Stafford. Even even a Jay Cutler that just has overwhelming arm arm talent, and uh, I think that's why Tosh. And I believe he's going to be resurrecting his career with that new football league that we're seeing with, uh, with the, the four-team football league that's starting. I believe he's going to be there after a short stint with the Jets. So best of luck to him. But uh, there's, there's definitely He threw some... a nice ball. He threw a nice ball. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think that... And getting back to Bryce Petty a little bit, I think that, you know, again, good player, but you, you put him against a Shane Carden. Shane Carden, unfortunately, East Carolina's lost a few games, but I really look there, even though he's from a smaller program, you put them under the microscope, they're the same quarterback. I think. Uh, I know, you love, you love Shane Carden. You love Shane Carden. I really do. I had him as probably about a sixth round pick, when, uh, fifth or sixth round when the season started. He's probably about a late, late three, early four right now. He's essentially going to be about the same as Bryce Petty there. Where do you see Brett Hundley going now? I've got him going in the second round. I, I think that uh, we always see some quarterbacks that, that kind of bust. I mean, it, it's close to a 50% rate, and bust is kind of a subjective subjective term. Tremendous work ethic, uh, but I uh, just don't see him. He's really got to get in the right system. I, I think that it's a big gamble, very big gamble, but actually have him in the second round going to Tennessee because uh, – unless they really think that Zach Mettenberger is going to be the long-term answer, because we all know that uh, Jake Locker has, has kind of worn out his welcome in Tennessee. So the, the opportunity is going to be there for, for Tennessee to get a very good quarterback in the second or third round. So if, if Mettenberger fails to really, really wow the brass, I think they'll, they'll bring someone else in. And in the latest mock, uh, we've got Hunley there at the top of the second round actually going to Tennessee. Very leery of it, however. I think of all the top-tier quarterbacks, he is the one that carries the most, most risk and probably the highest bus factor. Yeah, I agree. Well, we've talked a lot about quarterbacks and running backs tonight. Let's go to the other side of the ball. Um, how about cornerbacks? How do you feel about the cornerback class this year? Because right now we have Trey Wayne from Michigan State at number 10, and then followed by Marcus Peters, who was recently suspended. How do you feel about this class overall? As far as corners, there's some good corners out there, but there's not that one player that's kind of taken the torch. This just seems like of any of the positions where it's going to come down to how you do at the combine, how it's going to be for those one-on-one workouts or pro days. Um, it, it, it could be a guy who we're, we're thinking is like number five or six on the board that could suddenly just become like the top guy out there. There's just not that, that number one guy that just kind of screams, Hey, I'm, I'm head and shoulders above, above the rest. And it kind of happened last year with uh, Justin Gilbert who, you know, was, was seen as a probably a late first round uh, early second round prospect, I wasn't very high on him, uh, but the fact that uh, he, he ran such a such an impressive time and uh, a little more physical with his return ability, it just kind of propelled him into the top. And after that, it was kind of everyone was fighting for number two. As far as the weakest, I've always been a big proponent. Um, I was kind of a, I'd say a little more forward thinking with the use of the tight end and splitting them out at the uh, at the NFL level just just the mismatches that you see. This is a down year for tight ends. Uh, not a lot of 
big tight ends out there. I mean, we could essentially go without one in the first round. I mean, Devin Funches, who I think it could equate as a tight end, but, you know, he's used more as a, as a wide receiver for the last year and a half at Michigan. Uh, without without him, there's really not a first-rounder out there. It's just a lot of middle-tier guys. There's actually some very good small schoolers, like a West Saxton from uh, South Alabama or a Mike Holt Pruitt from Southern Illinois. But there's really just a lack of big-name tight ends, and I think that is, is one of the more disappointing positions going into this year with the way the NFL is kind of trending. I agree. I don't think the uh, college the college game is trend, transitioned the same way that the NFL game has, and having that big mismatch tight end. I think last year there was more than I can remember in a while, like that big six foot seven tight end that really is a is a primary receiver. I mean, uh, you could talk about the jack of all trades, traits, Nick O'Leary. That's somebody that uh, with versatility that we can talk about being uh, somebody that is a because of his versatility, can be drafted a little bit higher than you would expect. And uh, as for corners, I'm always looking for just big body corners that maybe transition from the wide receiver position late in their career, like a Richard Sherman, and somebody that I was watching tape on last year and obviously hasn't played much this year is Josh Shaw out of uh, USC. I I like his size. I like the fact that he's fast. Uh, He has adequate cover skills, but I think he's more more equipped to play – Zone and let's say like a like a Dick LeBeau offense defense. So that's somebody I I'm not saying he's number one, but like like uh, DJ said, I don't see that one cornerback that's uh, gonna blow your mind that you're that you're even gonna trade up to get you know in the mid first round. Yeah, I think because of that, there's there's it's just gonna be that one position. I think it's just gonna end up colliding on a lot of draft board teams that have a big needed corner are gonna think, oh, we can we don't have to spend a first round pick here. We can get someone in the second, third, fourth round. And we could see like a massive run kind of go in the, I'd say maybe in those middle stages when these corners start to go off. And then, uh, you know, they think there's kind of a drop from, from that tier to maybe the, uh, the seventh rounders or fringe free agent prospects. There's probably a, the, the final portion, maybe like round five, round six, could just be littered with corners. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of teams, there's, you know, with, with as much passing goes on in this league, corners just such a big need, but. Uh, I, I just think that they're going to look for individual talent. And if you want to go from an individual talent standpoint, I, there's a number of very, very good defensive linemen, de- defensive tackles, just kind of, um, again, people that – and you really got to watch the tape for the defensive tackles because they're, they're not playing a position where they're going to put up these mind-blowing stats or, you know, get all the sacks that the defensive ends do. Sometimes, depending on the system, sometimes they're just asked to be kind of a stopgap or opening up uh, the holes for the linebackers. There's a number of very, very good defensive tackles in this draft, and if you need a big anchor in your line, uh, this is a good year for you. There's going to be a lot of out there, for, a lot of prospects out there for you to, to choose from. And I, I think a lot of the teams that are picking at the top of the draft this year, that's something that they should seriously be considering because these are not teams that uh, are one or two skill players away from uh, from turning around. I know I want to talk about parity in the NFL. There's four te- three or four teams at the bottom that are very, very far away from competing. I think we'll definitely see some late, some nice late-round defensive tackles. I know, DJ, you've talked a lot about Christian Covington from Rice, guy who might get overlooked. I know you guys were talking about Michael Bennett from Ohio State a lot. That's whether or not he could play the defensive tackle role or more in uh, three, four front. Uh, Leonard Williams, DJ, I know you love him. Uh, we've had him at number one for a while. Danny Shelton's another guy from Washington who you spoke about earlier. And Ellis McCarthy is probably my favorite defensive tackle in this draft. 
he is just a, he is a monster. And uh, I think he, once he gets into the NFL training regimen, he's going to be unstoppable. Yeah, and there's a number of very good, uh, I'd say, kind of middle schoolers are, you know, playing in major programs, not from like the, the big conferences. Like Tyler Davison from, from Fresno State, they've maybe kind of flown a little bit under the radar because it's, it's been a down year for them. Uh, Travis Rossidi from uh, San Diego State, another very good uh, uh, defensive tackle that doesn't get the recognition. Even a Carl Davis from Iowa, a guy that's not asked to make the big plays. He's just more of a plotting stopgap guy, but, boy, is he just effective at what he does. Um, uh, Grady Jarrett from Clemson. There's a number of just very, very good defensive tackles on this board that's going to make a lot of teams very, very happy. DJ, let me hear your top five NFL teams as of right now. Uh, gosh, you've got to put the Patriots at one. I, I was really questioning you having them at one, but after watching them again this week, uh, I, I have to go Patriots one there. I have to say, touche. Um, I have to say Green Bay at two and Arizona at three. I know Arizona is very good. They've, they've got the best record, but, I mean, any team that gives – if you don't give pressure on Aaron Rodgers, that, that team is – they can beat anybody, um, even though they're, they're still – so a few questions on defense, but Aaron Rodgers is just too good. He can pick anybody apart. So I would say Green Bay two. I would say Arizona three. I'll have to drop the Broncos to four now, even though that was a kind of a surprising result yesterday. But it's still Peyton Manning. It's still an efficient offense. They're getting a little beat up now, though. Um, and five. Hmm. Gosh, I hate to say it, but um, I still like Dallas. It's, it's a good combo with DeMarco Murray as if Tony Rodham. Tony Romo staying healthy, um, I'd put him at five. Well, what do you got at top five? I don't like the Patriots, and I don't like the fact that uh, that uh, Ridley's out for the year, but, you know, they found their man in gray, so obviously you got to go with them number one to, to go out and smoke uh, Denver and uh, Indianapolis. you got to go with them one. Number two, I'm, uh, I'm with you Packers. I'm with you Packers. Uh, Aaron Rodgers the best quarterback in the NFL. Eddie Lacy's playing well. It seems like their defense is very opportunistic. They make a lot of big plays. Number three, I'm going to shock people right here, and I'm going to go with the Kansas City Chiefs. The Kansas City Chiefs lost to the Broncos, obviously lost to the Titans week one. Since then, they've lost one. The game they lost to the Broncos in mile high withstands Jamal Charles. So I'm going to go with them three. I'm going to go with Broncos four, and then five. I'm, I know people are going to laugh at me when I say this, but the Seahawks still. Don't sleep on the Seahawks. Well, uh, good thing you had Kansas City ranked uh, ahead of the C- Seahawks after the beating they put on them. Well, I mean, it, it wasn't at Arrowhead. It wasn't at Arrowhead. So if you look at that game, it was about even. But I just, coming off the bye, Kansas City's been an incredibly hot team. I like everything they do. I, I like their balance. I like how efficient they are. I like Andy Reid. And uh, if they can if they can somehow win the division, and it's not unplausible that they win the division, I think that's a really, really tough place to go play a playoff game. It's an, it's an arrowhead. And, and the AFC is, is not nearly as strong as the NFC this year, apart from maybe the Patriots, Colts, and Broncos. And I'm a Steelers fan, but uh, I think the Steelers in the playoffs could be good. But, they, I mean, like I said, they play down in their competition. I just want to see if the Falcons can uh, win the division at 4-6, four, four and six, but they're 4-0 in the division. That's got to be, like, the worst stat I've, I've seen, like, of the week. So I know, just it's a, I mean, testament to how bad the NFC South is right now. I thought that the NFC would be so stacked in the playoff picture that although they had an NFC South, you know, obviously somebody and a member of the NFC South participating, it would be the Saints. But, uh, I mean, if 
Of my power rankings, there is no team that I hate more than the Falcons. I think they're soft. I don't think they can win close games. And uh, I thought I was right, but, you know, they're, they're one of the divisions, so we'll see. Yeah, and I think if they weren't winning the division, I think Mike Smith would have been fired by now. I, I, I really thought he was going to be the first after uh, he's, he's the next coach to, coach to go. But All right, well, that's about it we have for time. Uh, the Monday Night Football is about to start, and we want to let everyone go and watch the Pittsburgh Steelers probably beat up on the Tennessee Titans. And uh, don't sleep on the Titans. I'm a Steelers fan. Don't sleep on the Titans. This is the same Steelers team that lost to the Bucks at home and just lost to the Jets. So, oh, I need, I need defensive points for my fantasy team, though. Oh, don't don't tell me. I, that. Hopefully yeah, you'll get them. Point. Hopefully you'll get them. Uh, <laughs> Menberger, Menberger is due for at least two interceptions. Let's just hope for you that one of them is returned for a touchdown. But the Steelers are missing Palomalo. The Steelers are missing Mike Taylor. I'm not sure Shazier is playing. Jarvis Jones is out of the year. So all the guys that are you know traditionally uh, playmakers on the defense are not going to be available. Let's see if anybody can step up. All right, go Steelers. I don't want to keep you guys, but it was good. All right, all right. It was nice talking to you guys. Hopefully next week. Join us next week, next Monday, 7.30, hour before the game, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, guys. Till my storm comes, babe, I'll be pushing on. Till my